Well, I would invite you to take your Bible with me to Matthew and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and our focus will be on verse 18 for the message entitled, Christ the Builder. Today is a special day as we celebrate the 25th anniversary, 25 years of faithfulness, as we've put on the logo. First and foremost, we're celebrating the faithfulness of God, who has worked through His people and in His people for the last 25 years in planting and developing and maturing Hope Bible Church. But we're also celebrating the faithfulness of God's people who have been zealous for Christ and for good deeds over the last 25 years. We've just heard one testimony uh, of God's faithfulness working in and through His people over the years. And again, we'll hear several more tonight. But time doesn't really allow for us to recount all of the ways that God has been faithful uh, to Hope Bible Church over the years. Nor does time allow for us to recount all of the ways that God's people have sacrificed and, and given and served uh, to, to serve the Lord and to see God's work uh, accomplished here at Hope Bible Church. But I do want to just offer one small example. You know, if, uh, if you're like our family, you came to Hope Bible Church after we came, uh, the church moved into this building four years ago. And it would be natural to walk into a building like this that uh, is, is beautiful and outfitted well for a church with adult classrooms, a worship center, children's classrooms. It'd be natural to assume that all of that work was done by hired contractors and paid workers. But that would be a false assumption with regard to this church. Uh, the Lord has used uh, at that time in 20. Uh, 17, 2018, uh, significant effort on the part of the, the body of Christ to do a massive amount of work in construction and painting, laying carpet, pulling cables throughout the building, uh, and so many other aspects to get the building ready for the use of God's people. In fact, let me, let me do this. If you had some part in getting this facility ready to be used and to be moved into, no matter how small, if you had some part in that, just raise your hand for a second. Just, wow. Wow. I mean, it's, it's the majority of the church. Hundreds of God's people came together. And that's just a small representation of how Hope Bible Church uh, is the result of God's people putting forth full effort and service uh, for the sake of Christ to see his purposes accomplished. I mean, there are many over, over the years who uh, Hope Bible Church wasn't just uh, their local church. It was their life. And they gave their life to serve Christ in the context of this local church to see the kingdom of God advance in Columbia and beyond. And to those of you for whom that is true, you need to know that God has kept a record of your deeds, and he will reward you in due time. Well, from time to time, you hear people say, the church is not an organization, it's an organism. You know, that's usually spoken by those who want to move away from what they would consider to be organized religion, or a structured leadership, or some kind of a standard of, of doctrine. They prefer a more free-flowing or self-styled, uh, anything-goes approach to church. But that is a fundamental denial of what the Scripture teaches. The Bible teaches that the church 
is an organization made up of an identifiable group of people who have covenanted together to submit to qualified elders and deacons for fulfilling the purposes of worship, discipleship, and evangelism. And all of that is under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Among other proofs for that definition, it's significant that the Bible uses the language of construction and of buildings to describe the church. Just for one example, uh, consider Ephesians 5, 19 to 22, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, which says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Or consider how Paul talks about his ministry of church planting in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So clearly the church is a building with a foundation and a cornerstone and various elements that are built together in an organized way. The church, Scripture says, is like a building. Another metaphor Scripture uses is the human body. We read earlier, Pastor Allen did from Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, which says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And Paul uses that same analogy in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about spiritual gifts. And he says there, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. And then he goes on from there to talk about the essential participation of every member of the church based on the gifts they've been given by the Spirit. So these two metaphors of the body and the building convey, among other things, that there is indeed a design and an organization that defines the church of Jesus Christ. What's required to fulfill a design or to maintain organization? Leadership. Leadership. Someone or multiple someones have to give some degree of direction for a design to come together. Every organization, whether it be a church or a business or a nonprofit or a government, has leaders. It has a hierarchy, even if it's relatively flat. At the highest level, some are led by a group of people, a board perhaps. Many are led by shareholders, those that are particularly large. Of course, many others are led by an individual. But what sets the church apart from all other organizations is that it is directly led by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, obviously, in one sense, Jesus is sovereign Lord of all. And and so in that sense, he's over all people and he sovereignly oversees all organizations, including governments. But there is a unique way in which Jesus directly oversees the church. 
unlike the church. Scripture doesn't give uh, uh, nations uh, what form of government they should have, nor does Scripture tell businesses what qualifications their managers or their directors should have. Though Jesus is Lord of all, there's a lot of freedom in how a business should be run, how organizations and governments should function. Not so with the church. Another distinction that we could identify is that unlike the church, all businesses and organizations and governments come to an end. Few businesses have lasted more than 100 years. Organizations rise and fall within decades, and governments are toppled, and new leadership and forms of government take their place. National boundaries change as one nation takes over part or all of others. The church is the only institution that Jesus promised not only to, to build, but also to sustain in perpetuity. No business, no nonprofit, no government has survived the curse of death. Some have lasted centuries, to be sure. Some have lasted mere days, but none have survived for millennia except for the church. And that is because the Lord Jesus Christ is over the church and He will not let anything, even the curse of death, remove the church from the world. That is the lesson of Matthew 16, 18. If you're there, follow along as I read verses 13 to 20 for the sake of context. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that I am, that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. We won't do a full exposition of this text. But I do want to give you some background before we narrow our focus on verse 18. We're told in verse 13 that Jesus and his disciples have come into the area of Caesarea Philippi. This is not the city of Philippi to whom Paul wrote Philippians, nor is it the Caesarea that's on the coast of Israel. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have spent the last few months in the northern region of Israel, in the, uh, covering the cities around the Sea of Galilee, going all the way west to Tyre, which is a port city on the Mediterranean Sea, and then back again to Caesarea Philippi, which is the furthest northeast area of the land of Israel. Uh, This city was so near the border that it was heavily populated by Gentiles. That, 
plus the extensive traveling meant that the disciples had a lot of private instruction from Jesus and there was very little public ministry. And it's almost certain that this was confusing to the disciples. They knew Jesus was more than a prophet. They knew he was not John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or anyone else. They knew, as Peter himself confessed, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They were not confused on that issue. The reason for their confusion is that as the Messiah, Jesus was not conducting himself the way they expected the Messiah to do. You see, the Jews assumed the Messiah would come and conquer whatever nation was overruling Israel at the time. And at this time, of course, it was the Romans. They assumed the Messiah would usher in a new and glorious kingdom for Israel. And the disciples had that very same conviction. And so with that expectation, it seemed like Jesus was really wasting precious time in these less Jewishly populated areas rather than taking advantage of the groundswell of support that he could have had and was having in the larger areas, especially in Jerusalem. The disciples, no doubt, had their own ideas of how Jesus should accomplish his mission, and Jesus was not measuring up. In fact, you can look down at verse 21 to 23, where it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Their minds were in the wrong place. They had the wrong expectations. And so Jesus had to confront them head on. He had to correct their understanding of what to expect. And so this passage of Matthew 16, especially verse 18, is given not only to them, but to us as well. For the last 2,000 years, it has been the common tendency of the followers of Christ to essentially uh, elevate their thoughts of what the church should be above what Jesus revealed the church should be. Whether it's the church at Corinth where divisions were being created because of favoritism of various leaders, or whether it was the 4th century church where becoming a Christian was more a matter of social and political gain, or in the 15, excuse me, the Middle Ages where the church became a military power, or the 15th century where some thought the church should retreat from the world, or the 20th and 21st century where they thought they should bring the world into the church. Many who have claimed to follow Christ throughout history have set aside Jesus' instructions and developed their own convictions of what God's plans and purposes should be in the world. And you know, we can be tempted to do the very same thing. And so on the 25th anniversary of Hope Bible Church, this is a good time to remind ourselves of what Jesus promises here. In this passage on verse 18 in particular, the word church is the first time it is used in the Bible, in the New Testament. And in fact, it's only one of two places it is used in the Gospels at all. The other place being in chapter 18, where Jesus gives instructions on how the church should deal with sin among God's people. 
At this time in history, in the life of Jesus, the church in the sense of the dwelling of God and the body of Christ did not exist. There was no church in the Old Testament. There, there was no church during the life of Jesus. The church was born, as Acts 2 tells us, on the day of Pentecost. And so what we have here from Jesus in verse 18 in particular is a promise. And we know what Jesus does with his promises, don't we? He keeps them. So with our remaining time, I just want to draw out two clear principles from verse 18 that not only explains the last 25 years of Hope Bible Church, but which also spurs us on to the future of what God has for us. The first principle I want to draw from verse 18 is this. Jesus builds his church. Jesus builds his church. It's very simply stated there. Jesus said, I will build my church. Doesn't require much interpretation. It's such a simple statement, but vast are its implications. This is, of course, not a reference to an individual local church, but rather to the universal body of Christ. This statement means that it is not we who build His church. The church is not our idea. It's not the result of our own creativity, imagination, or vision. The church exists independent of every and any person other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The church doesn't belong to us. We are not part owners. We are not shareholders. We do not have a say in it. Christ is the architect, the builder, the owner, and the manager of the church. The success of the church is not dependent on us and our finances and our abilities, our resources, or our faithfulness. The success of the church is dependent solely on the faithfulness and the power of Jesus Christ. Now, the disciples would have understood this word church in its basic meaning, which refers to an assembly of people, a people who are called together for a specific purpose. Ecclesia is the term in Greek. And originally, that term had no particular religious overtones. Uh, you could talk about an ecclesia of people who gather together for entertainment purposes or for civic causes or who have been called together for whatever purpose. But by saying... I will build my church, Jesus infuses and injects new meaning into this common term. First of all, he identifies this gathering as something that belongs to him. He calls it my church. He owns it. He is the instigator of it. He is the creator of it. This, assemb uh, this uh, assembly is a group that Jesus brings together. They come together under his banner in His name, for His mission and under His authority. There were gatherings around Jesus all the time during His life. People would follow Him everywhere, and whenever people would see Him coming near a town, everybody would rush out to meet Jesus. They would be gathered together because they wanted to hear Jesus taste, they wanted to be healed by Him, or they just wanted to hang around Him because He was such a gracious leader and a wonderful teacher. But they were not a an ecclesia of Jesus, because Jesus himself was not calling them together, nor were they gathered for his own purposes. The true church would be his. It would belong to him because he would be the one who would be calling them together, and they would be gathered together for his purposes, not their own desires. 
That's why, for example, people who get together for an evangelistic campaign is not a church. Nor is just a group of believers hanging out together for fellowship in and of itself a church. To be a church, it has to be constituted by Christ and it has to fulfill the purposes of Christ as defined in Scripture. This is what it means that the church is His church. Now, another implication of Jesus' saying here is that in saying Jesus will build His church, Jesus indicates that the church is something more than a gathering. He uses that construction term to convey that the church has structure and longevity. This term implies planning and architecting and intentionality and purpose. And then he says, I will build my church. Jesus means that he won't leave the work to others. He will do it himself. He did not commission the disciples or the apostles to build the church or to grow the church or to structure the church as they deemed best. He himself builds the church and he grows the church and he structures the church. He determines who is called into his church and who isn't. Who is qualified to be a leader and who isn't. The church depends on his power, not ours. The church thrives on his planning, not on our ingenuity. The church has one owner, one head, and one ruler. And that is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's said that the president's cabinet serves at the pleasure of the president. At any time and for any reason, the president can say, you're done. And there's no higher authority to whom one can appeal if they don't like what the president is doing, if they are on the cabinet. In the same way, every leader and every member serves at the pleasure of the king of kings. Every person is called, who is called into the church, he uses according to his will and his purpose. Some he moves around from place to place. Others he plants in one place for a very long time. But once his purposes for each individual is completed, he promotes them to glory. You know, this week, Boris Johnson, when he resigned, he made the true statement that in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. Well, my friends, in a sense, that is true in the church as well. The, church, the success of the church does not depend on anyone except for the Lord Jesus Christ. The church belongs to him, and he builds it according to his own will. And so as we consider Hope Bible Church, and that we have been in existence as a local expression of the body of Christ for 25 years, and those 25 are just the last 25 of the 2,000 years of church history, we can rejoice that it has been the good pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ to build His church here in Columbia through this church. In the process of building this church, the Lord has used the, the Leeks and the Plumleys and the Zenders and the Levins and others from the beginning. He's used a host of others over time, and right now He is using each one of us to build His church. We know that Hope Bible Church is not even close to the totality of what God is doing in Columbia or in this region. That's why we pray for other churches regularly. 
But Jesus has seen fit out of his own good pleasure to make us part of his purpose and his plan at this time in history. Some of you have been part of Hope Bible Church for 25 years. Most of us for varying lengths of time. But we celebrate because Hope Bible Church is the manifestation of the faithfulness of Jesus to fulfill his promise to build his church. What a good and faithful God he is. Jesus builds his church. The second truth I want to draw out of this text is the reality that death itself cannot overpower the church. Death itself cannot overpower the church. You see there in verse 18 that in in addition to saying, I will build my church, notice that Jesus went on to say, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. If you have an ESV or the King James, you see that it says hell there, not Hades. But Hades is the better translation. Really, it's the transliteration. The Greek word is Hades. Hades is the grave, the place of the dead. And so the comparison is not hell as opposed to heaven, but Hades, the place of the dead, as opposed to the earth, the place of the living. As such, Hades is not a reference to Satan and his demons, as as though Jesus were saying that uh, the devil and his angels will not be successful in their attacks against the church, though that is ultimately a true statement. Rather, he is saying that death itself will not prevail over the church. Notice how Jesus says, the gates of Hades will not overpower the church. I don't know if you've seen any war movies or if you've been in war yourself, but I don't know of anybody who's ever marched into battle carrying a set of gates. They're not an offensive weapon. Gates have one purpose, to regulate entering and leaving. In the case of the gates of Hades, as a metaphor, they served the twofold purpose of welcoming people into the realm of the dead and preventing anyone from leaving the realm of the dead. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that death is the last enemy. And in that sense, it's the ultimate enemy. In fact, you can measure the strength of any enemy on the basis of its ability to wield the power of death. The reason we no longer have Amorites or Canaanites or Girgashites or Jebusites on the planet is not because they fell into financial disarray or or moral scandal, but because they all died. And the reason Assyria and Babylon and the Roman Empire are no longer on the earth is because the power of the sword was inflicted upon them. Organizations often end when the owner dies or the founder dies and no one's passionate enough to keep them keep it going. Family businesses close when the family Uh, The head of the family dies and there's no heir to take over. Nations, organizations, and businesses all succumb to the power of death. The gates of Hades ensure that no one can rise from the dead to preserve their interests on the earth. Not so with the church. Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The the Jewish leaders thought and they knew that if you kill the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And so they killed Jesus. But the gates of Hades did not overpower him. Instead, he rose in victory over death. 
When the followers of Jesus began to multiply in the book of Acts, the hatred of the Jews rose to a boiling point, and so they murdered Stephen. But the gates of Hades did not overpower the church. Herod pleased the Jews by beheading James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But the gates of Hades did not prevail against the church. Nero sanctioned widespread persecution and enjoyed killing Christians. But the gates of Hades did not overpower the church. The day came when the renowned church of Ephesus, planted by Paul, pastored for many years by Timothy and the Apostle John, closed its doors. But the gates of Hades did not overpower the church. Throughout the centuries, death has wreaked havoc on societies. Plagues have killed significant portions of cities and nations, left cities decimate as people fled from them. COVID-19 caused a lot of churches to close for months and in some cases, years. But the church of Jesus Christ has never succumbed to the power of death. Local churches close and open all the time. In fact, one study indicates that in 2019, 4,500 churches closed. No doubt that number rose much higher in 2020 and 2021. But churches closing does not equate to the kingdom of God shrinking. In 2014, I pastored a church of about 30 people and we closed our doors. And I told the people at that time at our last service, just because we're closing our doors, it doesn't mean the kingdom of God is Shrinking, it means we're going into other local churches to advance the kingdom of God there. Some of you have come here because your church has closed. God's work in the world is not dependent on any particular local church. It wasn't dependent on the Apostle Paul staying out of prison, as we saw last week, or even staying alive. It wasn't dependent on the church of Ephesus or the church of Philippi or the church of Corinth or the church of Rome. Beloved, it is a sobering thought to consider that the Lord doesn't need Hope Bible Church in order to advance His purposes in the world. But it is a blessed truth, again, that it has been His good pleasure to work in and through Hope Bible Church for the last 25 years. And we pray that He will continue to delight in our sacrificial service as we remain faithful to Him for many years to come. You know, the truth is, no church closes when it's strong and vibrantly and effectively preaching the gospel. Churches that make it past the first few years usually only close when the hearts of the people leave their first love. Or when preserving the institution becomes more important than proclaiming Christ. Or when the members only have that outward form of religion, but their hearts have turned away from the Lord. I'm convinced that the reason the Lord has worked in and through Hope Bible Church for the last 25 years is because of the high commitment to proclaim the Word of God and the passionate ministry of the people of God to serve the body of Christ. And so as we remain faithful to the calling of our Lord Jesus Christ, He will continue to work in and through us to accomplish His purposes here and abroad. No one's death will put an end to the work of Christ in building His church. As the Lord wills, He will move individuals from one place to another as He has over the years. But the work of the church continues. 
the gates of Hades will not overpower the church. So beloved, as we celebrate what the Lord has done, let us also commit ourselves afresh to be faithful to Him. Let's fix our minds on serving the Lord Jesus Christ above all else. Let's establish in our hearts that we will give of ourselves to the service of our King because the one who gave his life for us is worthy of everything that we can give to him. May we submit ourselves to the word in the church, in our homes, in the community so that Christ would be exalted. Let us purpose in our hearts to be ambassadors for Christ in the world and to be zealous for good deeds and to promote the spreading of the gospel at home and abroad. Let us commit ourselves to remain faithful to gather together and not for the sake and not forsake the assembling of ourselves let us aim always to speak the truth in love so that we will grow in maturity and Christ likeness all of these things we can do only by the power of Christ and he will give us that power as we remain faithful to him for from him and through him And to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we celebrate and rejoice because You are the one who builds Your church. You have kept Your promise for the last 2,000 years. We have seen Your promises fulfilled the last 25 years in this local expression of the church. And it is our joy and privilege, though we don't deserve it, to serve you. Each one of us are nothing but your slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done because you have given yourself to us. And so may you be pleased to continue to receive our worship and our service to the glory of your name. And may Columbia and Howard County and the surrounding region know that Christ is Lord and that you are building your church. You are worthy of our worship. And so we give it to you. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen.